I am Dr. Thomas Slavin, Chief Medical Officer for Myriad Genetics. Welcome to Inside the Genome. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we have Dr. Maddie Crutchfield. She is an anesthesiologist in New Jersey. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Crutchfield. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Dr. Crutchfield is a physician turned patient, and I invited her on today so she can talk about her story and her perspective of having a PALB2 mutation and what that meant for her personal journey. I am very uh, excited to talk to you today. We've had a few uh, conversations leading up to this, and uh, you were uh, recently even on uh, TV showing your story. So, I mean, it's it's really been uh, amazing to see everything, and it's people like you getting, you know, these types of stories out that really raise awareness, you know, across the, the country and globe. So, thank you. Very, very welcome. Uh, let's just start. I mean, if you want to tell people a little bit about what you do as a provider and, and kind of talk about your story, like how did you, you know, end up getting uh, genetic testing and, and, you know, what transpired from there? Yeah, sure. So I'm a, a clinical anesthesiologist. I've been working for about 15 years or so um, in operating rooms, seeing all different kinds of surgeries as, as part of what I do every day had always had a, a family history that was relatively strong for both breast and ovarian cancer that I should have probably honestly looked at more closely earlier, but it was when I got a, a new OBGYN physician who retook the family history from me and suggested that I get genetic testing done um, in the fall of 2021, that it really popped into my mind that uh, this was something that could really greatly impact my my own health and the health of my two daughters and my son. So in um, October of 2021, my OBGYN doctor called me and she said, you know, you are positive for PALB2. And as much as I think I had thought about the possibility, it was still a bit of a shock to hear it. Once I got that information, I wanted to be very proactive about exploring the different options and what that meant for me in terms of risk and certainly how it could uh, potentially impact my children also. Being a physician, I mean, how do you think your training, you know, you, you said, yeah, maybe I should have picked up on this sooner. Did you feel like you had the right training to even, um, you know, identify this through medical school? Was it something on your mind that you looked back and said, oh, yeah, you know, I, uh, I should have thought about this from my hereditary education in cancer genetics or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I I think that is such an excellent point because I actually had considered genetic testing when I was a resident, so back when I was mm -hmm. in my 20s, and had talked to a genetic counselor, and at the time, my risk was thought to be relatively low. Yeah. Did and you formally talk to them, or did, was it just kind of on the side? You yeah, know, because yeah. I was in the profession, and yeah. um, at that time, cancer genetics is not what it is today. Mm -hmm. And so, at that time, you know, the advice was in a general way: why don't you know we don't see an urgency to do genetic testing now? You're you're young, you haven't had children yet. You know, why don't you revisit this later? And so that's exactly what happened. I did revisit later, and and luckily for me, thank goodness I did because. PALB2 would not have been detected 20 years ago, but it was mm -hmm. certainly detected now. 
And so I think for me, the biggest take home message was that when you think about something like cancer genetics and family history, it's not a subject that you visit once in your life, but something that you need to revisit at various times in your life as both your family history can change, but also developments in cancer genetics can change. And of course your risk and your yeah. decision-making is impacted a little bit by your age. And so for me, I think the biggest take home message being a physician that had not been obvious to me prior was this is a continuum. Mm -hmm. This is an ongoing lifelong discussion, not just a specific point in time. No, that's a, that's a good point. And, you know, you consider yourself a pre-viver and I, I wanted to kind of get into that a little bit for, for those that, you know, are on and, and don't know what a previvor is. I mean, that's someone that had a, a, you know, strong risk for cancer that did something to mitigate that risk and, you know, is, is still living. I mean, at least that's the way I think about it. I don't know how, mm -hmm. how your let's, we can compare terms. I mean, um, you know, what, what do you think of when you say previvor? I agree. That's exactly how I think of it. I, I think of it as someone who is at higher risk for hereditary cancer and who has the opportunity to exercise the option of, of doing something preventative, mm -hmm. something prophylactic. So, you know, you found out you had PALB2, you know, what, what were the, you know, clearly it was a shock, you know, as you've mentioned, I mean, um, yeah, walk us through that a little bit. I mean, did you take some time to reflect? Were you immediately jumping on something? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I think there's, um, there's certainly the intellectual aspect to the decision, um, that came to the forefront of my mind, but probably because I'm a physician myself, I do work in operating rooms. I was more familiar than most people with, with the type of surgery that I needed to have if I wanted uh, to to be very proactive about and were you the thinking mutations? surgery in particular or were you thinking well I, maybe I'll do high risk breast screening for a while or maybe you started a high risk breast screening I don't, I don't know. yeah so I had um, gone to to speak with a surgeon at a hospital um, that I had worked at who was very well versed in in breast oncology and in hereditary cancers and she did right away give me the two options that that people may or may not be familiar with, which is, you know, one option is high risk screening. Uh, for me, that meant every six months having breast MRIs, breast ultrasounds, mammograms. I, I can't remember exactly um, all the components, but every six months there was going to be a screening mm -hmm. test. The other option was to do prophylactic mastectomy surgery. And as I was talking with her, she, she, she said something that resonated with me. And she said, we have lots of different tools to detect breast cancer, lots of different tools, but we only have one to prevent it. And that is surgery. And, and for me, that was an important thing to hear. And as I thought about my personal decisions, and it, it is a very personal decision, for me, it was better to go ahead and do something very proactive and really truly minimize my risk. That felt in a way a little bit less scary and less overwhelming than thinking about getting a screening test every six months for the rest yeah. of my life. And there is there is the middle ground of chemo prevention or like, uh, you know, hormone modification, like oophorectomy mm -hmm. to reduce risk for breast cancer. You know, we are learning, you know, PALB2 is uh, a little bit more of a predispos 
predisposer for, you know, uh, ER negative, you know, maybe triple negative and things. So there's some ongoing research right now. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, clearly it's a world where we have to learn a lot more about, you know, maybe there's, you know, some predisposition that is just a little bit better uh, attuned to chemo prevention than than others. Uh, you know, like we know, you know, ATM and CHECK2 mutation carriers, for instance, tend to be a little bit more prone to making ER positive uh, breast cancer. So, you know, arguably, yes, chemo prevention may be a little bit better for them. I mean, you know, clearly much research to uh, be done there and, and these are kind of things that are not in guidelines by any means at the moment. And, yeah. you know, we, we need some actual studies. And, and But, you know, I think that's at least when you're when we're looking at you know the tumor types that the mutation carriers are being predisposed to, the, it is shaping up interestingly uh, like that. And you know it's not I guess not too shocking too because we even think of like BRCA1 mutation carriers you know being very susceptible to triple negative breast cancer. And you know PALB2 is uh, you know kind of in that same pathway. It's a partner and localizer of BRCA2, so it, it hangs out uh, with those uh, same proteins. And it wouldn't be shocking that it you know there's some uh, you know more triple negative. Uh, predisposition. So, yeah, yeah, interesting. So you, you you were ready, had your bilateral mastectomy, and did everything go smoothly? Yes, yes. So I on uh, November thirtieth of twenty twenty one, um, I did undergo um, prophylactic mastectomy surgery, um, bilateral, of course, and initial reconstruction. And it did go very smoothly. I was very very fortunate. Um, I had. Uh, very few health problems uh, going into surgery. So I think that was helpful. And um, the surgery did go well. And then on February 28th, I had the second stage reconstruction done, which which also went smoothly. So as a as a physician, you know, you have uh, you, you definitely gain a true appreciation for what it is like to be a patient. Sometimes it makes things harder. Sometimes it makes things easier. Um, I certainly knew, I, I think, maybe a little bit better what to expect in terms of recovery, things like that, be, because I do see the surgeries and the patients. But when it's happening to you, it's it's always a whole different ballgame. So I, um, I'm very pleased that it, that it went well. And I do feel where I sit right now, a sense of relief a little bit mm -hmm. that um, this, this feels like the right decision for me. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask you. I was going to ask, like, how you felt about it afterwards. I mean, if you felt like, yes, I made, you know, the right decision here or, or yeah, mm -hmm. something else. Mm -hmm. I think intellectually, it's it's one thing to make the decision. And when I got the diagnosis, I, I certainly kind of put on my intellectual hat and looked at statistics and read papers and talked to experts. And I was able to make that pragmatic intellectual decision fairly quickly. The, the emotional part of the decision is real. It's, it's mm -hmm. real. It's strong. Even though you know this is probably a, a, a very um, sound decision to make, there's an emotional component. Um, everybody is a little apprehensive to have surgery. Everybody's apprehensive to, to take on something like that. And I, I certainly was too. So there is a sense of relief to just kind of get through the emotional part of it too. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And now, I mean, um, you know, we were talking about this a little bit before the podcast, but, um, you know, now there's even bigger decision that you're making coming up, not necessarily bigger, but, you know, less clear, maybe, yes. you know, where, yes. where uh, if you want to tell the audience about what you're now contemplating. 
Yeah, yeah. So um, the PALB2 mutation also puts me at higher risk for ovarian cancer. As you're alluding to, less, less definitive what the actual risk may be, but, but it is real, it is there. So I went ahead and, and did speak with um, a GYN oncologist surgeon uh, about having prophylactic surgery um, for the ovarian risk. And I think a part of me was like, wow, here we go again. So it felt like restarting that whole emotional intellectual decision again, one more time, as, as we know, or as we can discuss with ovarian cancer, um, there are not as good screening tools as there are for breast. And so the risk may be lower in terms of actual risk of developing ovarian cancer, but the risk of detecting it later when it can have higher morbidity, um, you know, is higher. And so when I took a balance of everything, I, I felt like, you know what, I'm going to proceed with this surgery also. And that surgery is ahead of me still. It's um, scheduled for May 20th. Yeah, that's a big uh, decision. And, you know, the guidelines, at least, you know, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, at least, you know, say there's evidence insufficient. You know, there's clearly some emergence of uh, an association with PALB2 uh, mutations in um, people and uh, ovarian cancer. And I think we're just like on the early side of trying to understand exactly, you know, how yeah. predisposed, uh, you know, there's certainly a risk. It, it doesn't appear, at least uh, in current literature, to be as high as, you know, BRCA1 and BRCA2 carriers. Mm -hmm. uh, but it does seem to be an appreciable risk. It's come out, you know, time and time again, <clears throat> you know, mm -hmm. in, in various uh, studies over the last, uh, you know, five to 10 years in particular, you know, some of those I was even part of. So, yeah, you know, I, I definitely feel for you is that's a you know, much, much uh, more difficult decision to, to some extent where, mm -hmm. you know, on the, the flip side, the breast cancer risk, I think we, we have enough, uh, you know, research at this point where at least, you know, guideline committees are, are comfortable saying, yeah, consider, um, you know, or discuss risk reducing, you know, mastectomy as a, mm -hmm. a potential option at that point. Yes. So. Yes, that's exactly, you're echoing exactly what my surgeon said. Uh, we're, we're on the early side of it. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about your your family, you know, to, you know how uh, how is everyone taking this? I mean, you're, you're, here you are, you just said your breasts removed, you're uh, coming up for bilateral, you know, salpingoophorectomy, you know, both ovaries removed for our audience uh, with, with tubes. And have you been talking with your family about this? I mean, what? how are they, you know, the kind of, processing all of this, yeah, seeing the physician, yeah. you know, I don't know, maybe you have tons of physicians in your family, but you know, you're, you're a physician and I would think they would really be, you know, uh, carefully looking at what you're doing. Yes. Yes. So, um, I have, uh, I have three children. I have a, a daughter who's 17 and a son who's 15 and a daughter who's four. So I have a, a very wide age range of children. Oh, wow, yeah. So my four-year-old of, of course is not you know, actively contemplating any of these decisions, but, but my older children have been, I have to say, I've been so pleasantly surprised by how supportive they have been. And I think, you know, as children, they want their mom to be safe and healthy, of course. And they've been very supportive in terms of that sense of empowerment that you have with a proactive decision. I think they're old enough to really understand 
that sensibility of it. Um, and so they have been very supportive and, and some of my biggest cheerleaders, honestly, they really yeah. have been. And then um, the other relatives and, and family members, I think because we have lost several relatives to bre both breast and ovarian cancer, and everybody remembers how difficult um, that can be. I, I think there's a lot of support. You know, nobody wants to see another family member go through that. So I think there is a lot of support. And I've definitely had some other family members come to me and say, well, gee, maybe I should get genetic testing, as well as friends and neighbors who have similar family history. And I, I think that's why we're here today. It's just to get people thinking about themselves, their own health, their own family history, and um, considering gathering knowledge that could potentially help people make decisions. Yeah, like who else in the family had testing um, at this yeah. point? I mean, you don't yeah, have to be it, specific, but have you really disseminated it? And are people like going for what we call kind of cascade genetic testing and knowing yeah, if they're pairs or not? Yeah, so, so I have a small family. First and foremost, I was the first one in my family to get the genetic testing. Um, my mom passed away in her um, at 62, 10 years ago, um, from a rare neurological illness. And she had been diagnosed in her mid-50s. So in terms of, you know, preventative screening tools and things like that, she probably stopped doing things like mammograms, you know, in her early 50s because of this other diagnosis, yeah. which we unfortunately knew was going to be terminal. So she never had the testing done, but it was her mother who had breast cancer, her mother's sister who had breast cancer, and that sister's daughter who had ovarian. So we, we had a, on my maternal side, a whole cluster of people who had passed away from these cancers. Um, and my mother, as I mentioned, was already busy enough with other things um, to, to really pursue it. So he came to me, you know, he came to me yeah. uh, as the first one. And my daughter, who is only 17, is already showing a lot of maturity with it. And, and what, you know, she's aware that she has a 50% chance of carrying this gene. And she's aware that that will mean either high risk screening for her, genetic testing at some point, and maybe even making similar decisions to myself. That's where, you know, genetics is really, you know, it's a family affair, you know, it's uh, mm -hmm. really just affects. Absolutely. Yeah, just the whole, the whole dynamic, uh, you know, from people being, you know, just, you know, being supportive of someone going through, you know, surgeries and, and different things, but also then being themselves at risk or, you know, yeah. being potential, you know, pre-vivors and things. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, I mean, if you had, you know, any, any pearls that you've learned, you know, through the, the process that you'd want to mm -hmm. bestow, uh, you know, for people either contemplating genetic testing or, or maybe, you know, been told they have a genetic, uh, you know, mutation that puts them at a higher risk for cancer. I mean, anything, um, you know, from your journey thus far that you wanted to share? Yeah, I think a couple things. I mean, one, to borrow from one of my surgeons, uh, she said knowledge is power. And, and I, I do believe that. I, I do believe that knowledge is power and it gives you the power to make a choice. And the second thing, so I, I'm very pro-knowledge. I'm very pro-gathering knowledge as much as you can. And then 
I think the second thing I would say is that it's such a personal decision and there is no right or wrong decision, but try to make it an informed decision. You know, yeah. do read, do speak to different physicians, do get second opinions, do get genetic testing if it is, you know, recommended because knowledge is power. And then you'll know for yourself that you've made the most informed, most educated decision you can. Whether it's to have high risk screening, whether it's to have surgery, that's a that's a personal decision. But to have to have the right information, I I think is always a good thing and always powerful. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your your journey with finding out you're a PALB2 mutation carrier, you know, after your, your family had, you know, lots of cancer in it, there were concerns, you know, going through the, the surgery, you know, uh, you know, it was really interesting to hear, you know, the family dynamics on the back end and just how it affects everyone. So this was, this was great. I really appreciate you, you know, coming on and sharing your story. So thank you so much and, uh, you know, good luck with the upcoming surgery. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to all the work that Myriad does. Um, just great work for, for everyone helping others. So thank you so much. Very thank grateful you. for it.